Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today I get to welcome back to the podcast Professor Gary Polk. Now, he was here last, honestly, and I just looked at my, my dates, but it was almost exactly a year ago today. And our topic of the conversation at that time was, Why Do Entrepreneurs Fail to Win? I have it on my desk. And this book is widely used as a textbook in college entrepreneurship programs. Now, Gary Polk is a black businessman, CEO, business consultant, university professor, and an author of, think of three books, but I'll, I'll check with him. So today he rejoins us to speak about social entrepreneurship, what it is, who it benefits, and why we should be paying attention to it in order to find financial freedom and create a positive legacy for future generations. Gary, I'm so glad to see you back. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back. Well, we always have these terrific conversations before, during, and after the podcast, and I tend to learn a Mm -hmm. lot from you, so... Here we go. I'm going to ask you at some point to put on your professor cap and just educate us because as you and I were talking in the virtual green room just a bit ago, the last two years have been interesting. Let's just go with interesting (laughs) because I don't Mm -hmm. want to say bad words on my own show, but we both agree that it's best to look at the positive things that happened where people were able to adapt and here's that word I hate, but pivot. And then just say, listen, this is what we really need to do right now and then go do it. And you're known for just going and getting things done. So before we get started, tell people a bit about you that I might've missed in the introduction. Well, thanks for asking. Um, I'm a local product to uh, Southern California. I grew up in the South Bay region, Uh, went to Loyola Marymount University, got a BA, and got my master's at um, Cal State Dominguez Hills, where I teach now. Uh, Came out of Loyola and went into banking and didn't realize how much I learned in banking until after banking, until after I left banking. But my last assignment in banking, I was in Beverly Hills, and we were one of the top three or four branches of Bank of America uh, system-wide. And when you're in Beverly Hills and working every day and see how people are, you kind of get a different view, at least I did. I started looking at the personal financial statements of my clients and realized most of them were entrepreneurs. You know, we hear about the attorneys and the entertainers and the athletes and the showbiz people like that, but the common folks like us, they're entrepreneurs. And so that's when I realized I needed to get out of corporate America, get out of banking, and try to do something on my own. And along the way, in 1991, I was doing some um, volunteer work for the advisory board at Cal State Northridge. And the dean of the College of Business tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to teach a class, Introduction to Business. They wanted to recruit more black and brown uh, students to come to Northridge and major in business. And he said, well, I've seen you work with our students. You do a good job, and I'm sure you're qualified. You have a master's degree, et cetera. So then I had to ask myself, how can I establish myself as a college professor? And I said, I've read a lot of business plans. I'm going to teach these kids how to write a business plan and capitalize a business. But instead of bringing in or letting them present to their classmates, I'll bring in my CPA and banker friends. And that worked well. The banker friends uh, formed a long committee. They'd come in. They got energized, and the students were energized just to be talking to professionals. Three years go by. They run out of money in the program, and I told them, hey, I'm doing this part-time. I'm enjoying it. I'll teach for free. And they said, you will? I said, sure. They said, okay, but don't tell the union, and we'll do that. And so that semester I taught as if I was being paid, and that's when I realized in 93, 94, the teaching was my passion. So fast forward three more years, I'm at Farmers Insurance as a 
assistant district manager getting ready to take over my own district, and I resigned. I walked into my manager's office and said, I'm out. I'm going to pursue my passion. I'm going to teach full time at the college level and coach high school girls basketball. He looked at me like I had two heads, and it was the best <laughs> decision I ever made. Left you a know, lot of money on the table, but I love yeah. what I'm doing today. And see, and and I love that you said that because it is so easy to just say, wow, the money's good, and I've got great insurance, and my, you know, I'm not having any kind of problems. I'm just going to stay put. It's safe here, but is it? I mean, if you're doing something that just doesn't really resonate with you heart and soul and you don't feel like you're genuinely helping other people, I think that kind of does something to who you are in the end. Yeah. So, you know, my thing, Frankie, is that I was fortunate. I was first-generation college graduate out of my family. Uh, My mother was bound and determined for me to go to college. And I realized that, I mean, Denise, I'm sorry. I realized that education is really one of the keys to give you opportunities. So some people say, well, you don't need college. Well, okay, college is not for everyone. I understand that. But I tell people college does two things. One is that they help you or teach you to think critically. And instead of seeing something on the Internet or on the news and take that as gospel, people go to college and realize, well, maybe there's another opinion. Maybe I should think about the source and think critically. And then the other thing that college does, it really gives you more opportunities. One of my favorite stories, a buddy of mine was working at Raytheon, and he was in middle management, and a young man approached him and said, hey, Mr. D, I'd like to do what you're doing. He said, okay, well, let's talk about it. He said, do you have a college degree? He said, no. He said, well, let's look at the opportunities at Raytheon without a college degree, and one page shows up. Let's look at the opportunities at Raytheon with the college degree and 10 pages show up. And that was really the guy opened his eyes pretty wide and said, wow, I understand that. So he needs to go back and get his education. But we know it's not for everybody. I think um, when I was in school, I had a chance to take graphic arts and uh, industrial arts and wood shop and metal shop and culinary. I don't think everyone should be going to college today because everyone's not meant to. But that's kind of where we are, that everyone has to go to college, and they kind of forgot about the trades. But I think you can do something very good in the trades, and maybe you're better with your hands. And so I just see it's opportunities, and I think you got to look around and see what's best for you. For me, I think college is great, but I know it's not for everyone. It's not. And when I was you know, leaving high school, getting a college degree was in no way, shape, or form an option. It just wasn't. But later on in life, I decided that I wanted to go back to co- or go to college rather, mm-hmm. and I wanted to become a techie. Who knew? If you were to ask me in high school if I was going to be a creative technology person with a with a computer science degree, I would have laughed at you until I cried. It was not on mm-hmm. my horizon until I was older and went hmm. Okay, the internet was created for me, by the way. It's all mine. I let y'all share it, but it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Off I went. <laughs> so, and mm. it was the best decision I ever made. And one of the things when I when I graduated, they said, okay, we've got job openings for you. And I looked at them. I said, did you not pay any attention to me while I was in those classes? Mm. I'm not working for mm. anybody else ever, and I never have. There I created go. my own yep. business. Right out of the chute. But you're right. It's not for everybody, maybe at the time when they think it should be. But education is always for everybody, every day, however you get it. Right. And that was the point I wanted to make because sometimes it's not a formal education, but it's on-the-job training. It's Mm -hmm. learning life lessons. I was talking to a young lady who is – And critical thinking. I love that you brought that up because that seems to be lacking – across the board these days. Yeah, it really, it can be. And so this young lady I've met just recently, she's excited. She's getting ready to be discharged uh, from the Marine Corps in January. She has an opportunity to buy a business. And she said, I am so different than the person I was when I went in to the military. Now I have self-confidence. I don't mind public speaking. I understand leadership. I understand teamwork. And I was just a really 
person that didn't think much of themselves going into the military. So that's just an example that maybe the military is an option if you're not sure what you want to do because you go in there and you learn things like that, and plus you learn some kind of skill. I said, well, why didn't you stay in? She said, because I want to pursue my own passion, and I really want to go into business for myself. And there you have it. So we're going to be working with her. And, you know, to me, those are stories that are pretty common that we don't always know what we want to do. And then we go through college, we go through military, and then we realize, oh, okay, this is what I may want to do. And, again, it's just being exposed to different things. That's, I think, a big part of getting exposed to different opportunities, different cultures, different industries, and you may find your niche. Exactly. And you and I talked the last time you were here, we talked about exactly this, that entrepreneurship is a team sport. You can't do it on your own. Trust me on this, I tried. I'm Mm pig-headed. I'm an A-type personality. I can do it better than Mm -hmm. anybody else. Just ask me. That wasn't working. I had to figure Mm -hmm. out that I needed a team. I needed mentors. I needed coaching. Mm -hmm. And I still need all of those things. Nothing has changed. That's right. Well, that's good. And I'm glad it happened because when it does, then you're done and I'm done because once we think we know everything, they may as well put us in a box. So I'm committed to lifelong learning. You and me both. And I'm so glad that we're talking about this. And, Gary, I wanted to ask you, because we've talked before and we're talking again about social entrepreneurship. What is Mm. it? I know what it is. You know what it is. But our audience is probably saying, well, that sounds lovely, but what the heck are they talking about? So let's let's dive into that. Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, So social entrepreneurship is really interesting. Um, In 2017, we had just started the incubator at Dominguez Hills, Cal State University, Dominguez Hills. And uh, our first model was we empower entrepreneurs. And in April or May, I went to three social entrepreneur-related events, and I had this epiphany that that is what we should be about. We should be about social entrepreneurship, and that's going to make us unique compared to other college-based incubators. And whenever you're in business, one of the things you have to do is distinguish yourself is what makes you unique. So we made a pivot. I remember telling one of our VPs on my executive committee that we're going to pivot towards social entrepreneurship. She says, well, Gary, everybody can't be a nonprofit. I said, oh, slow down. Yeah, that's, that's where you that are. It's not just about nonprofits. Uh-huh. It's about entrepreneurs who want to do good while doing well. And so there's a guy named John Elkington, and in 1994, he came up with the idea, People Planet Profit, the three Ps, and that became known as the triple bottom line. And prior to that, in, in some circles still today, some people think that those three things cannot coexist, and it's a zero-sum game. So we have to make profit and forget about people or forget about our uh, planet, and that's not true. Those all three can work together. What's really uh, encouraging is that the generation of millennials, they're more altruistic than my baby boomer generation, and so they kind of understand that already. I've seen a lot of kids and do artwork, and I've heard stories where they're mad. They don't want to be more plastic bottles in the ocean than fish. And we used to think, well, the ocean is so vast, we can do anything. And that's not true. And so now we need to train business leaders. Not only do they need to make a profit, because that's what the basis of capitalism is, we understand that, but it's also about the planet and taking care of the planet, understanding our carbon footprint, understanding we want to take care of the planet to pass on to future generations, and then it's about people. And that could be the most important of the three because the people is really what makes it happen. So how we take care of customers, how we take care of employees. I am a huge fan of Starbucks. Not only do I like their coffee, I love their culture because Howard Schultz, the uh, founder He's retired now, but he's still the chairman, I believe, at Starbucks. He puts more money into advertising, I mean, to people, than he does advertising. So when they went public, 
they gave their part-time employees shares of stock. They have tuition-free at Arizona State University uh, for any of their employees. They have medical benefits, and they do this for part-timers. There are a lot of places that say, we have benefits, but you have to work 30 hours. Oh, sorry, you only get 29 hours. You only get 28 hours. Right, and I've that's seen it. And so Starbucks does it well because he believes, and to me it seems, why doesn't everyone understand this? If you take care of your people, if you make your people happy, they're going to take care of your customers. And it works for Starbucks. I think their market capital right now is $85 billion. And that's amazing because all they do is sell coffee primarily. But they have this great culture of taking care of their employees. They don't even call them employees. They actually call them partners. Just think about that. What do you think of when you hear partner? That person is my partner versus that person is my employee. Just a totally different mindset. mindset. It is. You know, I have a great team, but I don't call them employees. They're my team. They back me up. Sometimes they're in front of me. They're so smart. I make it a point to hire people who are better at whatever particular niche that I need than I am because this is all they do. They may work in one particular Mm -hmm. arena that I'm aware of it. I can work in it. I'm no longer an expert at it because I haven't stayed on top of everything, but I know enough to ask them to drive it. Yes. But they're well, team. They're not, they're not my employees at all. I would right. never denigrate them like that. Well, I think Sam Walton, when he started Walmart, instead of calling them employees, he called them associates. Right. Again, they just kind of make those, that person feel a little bit more part of what you're doing and an important part of it, just not – an employee that shows up. So I, um, you know, Starbucks is considered employer of choice. And so when I'm teaching entrepreneurship in my classes, I say, okay, we need to come up with a human resource plan. Now, this is your choice. You're the CEO. Are you going to be employer of choice? Or are you going to pay minimum wage? Are you going to try to pay living, pay living benefits? Are you going to try to pay um, health insurance, retirement? Well, you're going to have to make more money. It is more expensive if you're going to pay benefits like that. But if you have a lot of turnover, you're going to spend a lot of money. And they talk about, HR people talk about the hidden cost of turnover. You bring someone in and and, and they only last 30 days, you're losing a lot of money that you don't realize. You know what, Gary? I've talked to a lot of HR professionals on this podcast, and one of my – very good friends is an HR professional in California. And across the board, and they may not say it exactly like this, but the message is that HR should always be at the table when you're creating, yes. when yeah. you're crafting, when you're making decisions. They they shouldn't be the corner office where somebody goes to get their paperwork. They should always be at the table. And you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. So we put together student teams. I said, okay, we have to have a CFO for finance, a CMO for marketing, a COO for operations, a CTO for technology, and a CHRO for human resources. We've got to have people and someone on the chief uh, in what we call the C-suite. They have to be there fighting for the employees and telling everyone this is why we have to do this, and someone has to be that champion. And hopefully the CEO jumps on that bandwagon and say, hey, they're absolutely right. So business is somewhat complex, but in other ways it can be very simple. Take care of your people. You just can't get in there. Take care of your people. Your customers are happy. Take care of your people. You're going to live a lot. It's going to be a lot easier because your people buy into what you're doing and they feel ownership. And then if you can give them profit sharing, if you can give them an ESOP program, an employee stock ownership plan, if you can give them some kind of partnership opportunity to buy stock, now you have people that are truly engaged and truly feel like they're owners because they are. And they're not going home mad. Listen, I'm, no, they're going I haven't home had mad. a – the last time I had a job job was when I was still going to college. I was working during the day and going to school at night. And I signed up, I think, with one of those, um, I don't even know the name of it, but where you 
they put you in temporary places because I didn't want a job job. I just needed to make a paycheck. And fortunately, I liked where I I was and they actually wanted me to stay and go full time, which, you know, I I had a plan. Being employed by someone else was not my plan. But then I also took a second job because I could. I I had a few hours. I cannot tell you how wretched I was. It was so bad Mm. that when Mm. we left, there were three women in the office. And we honestly, I think we all had minor concussions from rolling our eyes. It was just (laughs) so bad. And I would get home. Mm. I was still married at the time. And I would tell my ex-husband, okay, you've got five minutes to tell me about your day. And then you have to give me 15 because I've got stuff to complain about. And it wasn't fun. It really wasn't. Mm. But it taught me a lot about how to treat my people, my my team, you know, ask them for input, make sure that they are invested, make sure that they don't feel like I'm just issuing orders and say, do it my way, my way is the only way. You want to drive people away? That's a great way to do it. And unfortunately, when I first started, because I am a techie person, I do know everything I'm asking. I make it a point to know everything I'm asking for. But I wanted it done my way. Bad move. Been a lot of time smacking myself in the head. Bad Denise. Bad Denise. Yeah. But well, at least it. you listen to yourself. Denise? What I did, Gary, I'm sorry, I muted us. What I did was I caught myself, I was writing out some instructions, and I started reading them out loud to make sure I hadn't missed anything. And I caught myself understanding almost instantly that if I spoke to myself out loud in that tone, I'd bloody my own nose. I would smack me. So I stopped doing that. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you did. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't rude. It was just do this my way, nobody gets hurt. Nobody wants to to work under those circumstances. And sadly, a lot of us still do. I don't, but a lot of people still do. Hmm. I know. So anyway, I'm t- I just went off on a rant there. Okay, so entrepreneurship is a team sport and social entrepreneurship is, and I remember this from the last time we spoke, it's a recognized business model. So is there anything else that we wanted to talk about that before we move on? Well, well, I think that it's important to understand that um, Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia, Paul Newman Foods, those are some of the big name companies that are social entrepreneurs. And they're actually uh, there's a couple, there's an organization called the B Corp, and they actually certify for-profit companies to become social entrepreneurs. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, and um, you'll see a big B on some websites where these companies went through the certification process. I think uh, there's a local chapter they call it B Corp LA, and there's a local chapter. And we had uh, one of their their chapter presidents come to uh, the Polk Institute to speak about social entrepreneurship. She said there are about 38, 3,900 companies in the U.S. currently certified as B Corps through this organization. But what's interesting that the B Corp or social entrepreneurship is actually bigger in South America and in Europe. They even have social entrepreneurs in Russia. And so I was at this one event, and these Russian social entrepreneurs were talking about the virtues of people, planet, profit. And, you know, our image of Russia is really not that same way. And that was kind of cool to hear them talk about how important that planet is, because we agree on that, and how important taking care of people are, because we agree on that. So social entrepreneurship is actually a worldwide thing, and we want it to be bigger in the United States. And... um I think on the West Coast, I've heard uh, she was telling me that the Portland chapter of the B Corp is actually a bigger chapter than L.A., and I said, well, we can't let that happen, so we're going to get involved with the B uh, local L.A. chapter, and we're going to try to spread the message and get more companies in Los Angeles to get involved with becoming social entrepreneurs. Like I mentioned earlier, 
the millennials and the Gen Zs, the younger kids, they're all over this because they're more altruistic by nature. So that's a good thing. It's really not a hard sell. For them sometimes it's the opposite where we got to slow them down a little bit. So wait a minute now. Tom Shoes does have a good model of giving away a pair of shoes when they sell shoes, but we can't do can't give away the profits too much. We got to slow down a little bit. There got to be a little balance there. So while social entrepreneurship is a great thing, it's still part of being a business model. In that business model, you got to figure out how to, can you be sustainable. And I think that's one of the challenges because if you're not, if you don't keep innovating, if you don't keep um, recharging, then you could stop innovating and you could die and go away because other companies are keeping, they keep on with their innovation. So it's just, you know, business is interesting. It's dynamic. And I think that if we can develop social entrepreneur leaders, I think overall the world's going to be a better place. Oh, I agree with you. And you've said a couple of things just in that one little snippet that kind of gathered my attention. And one of the thoughts that I had while you were speaking was that for the last several years, I don't know, might be five, six, ten years, it's been a while that I've been noticing that many young people will not go to a company that doesn't match their passion for the things that we're talking about. They just won't. You know, if you do not have some kind of a, a culture that matches what they think, they'll just pass you by. And they may be the perfect fit for your business, but you their culture, your your culture is not their culture. So I think that's pretty important to give some thought to. How, what does your culture look like? How are you sustaining it? And then let's go to profit because if you don't have profit and you're just giving things away and you're being all touchy feely huggy, you're going to fail, yeah, in my opinion. So profit well, is critical. Yeah, and that's where we have to find that balance. But see, that's the thing where people don't realize. Entrepreneurship is a tough journey, and entrepreneurship is actually a failure sport. Uh, It may sound sexy and glamorous to say, oh, I'm a CEO, but are you really? And I want to take a moment to just talk about what is a CEO. And at the Polk Institute, my nonprofit, we define a social, I mean, a CEO as a fundable CEO. So a fundable CEO can articulate a vision that's compelling, that's engaging, that's exciting. And people say, wow, we're going to do that? Yeah, I want to be part of that. And then the second thing that a fundable CEO has to do is go out and develop a team, recruit a team, bring people in, share the vision, and get them excited and say, yeah, let's be part of that. And then the third thing the fundable CEO has to do is go out and get capital, go out and and bring in more human capital, human resources, go out and – develop the partnerships, the key vendor relationships to bring back to the team so the team can then have the resources to reach the vision. So that's what we call a fundable CEO. And I think that's interesting because we say the second step, once you have your vision, is to start thinking about putting together your team. Now, maybe you can't put together five people in the first month, but if you can bring one person in, now you have at least one person that you can bounce things off of that's going to be there with you, that's going to work with you. And then you say, well, I'm good at creativity, so I need a finance person. But the finance person has to be smarter than me in finance. I was talking to a young man yesterday. He says, oh, I got this guy on my team, and he's really brilliant in finance, and I'm worried about he's going to think I'm incompetent. So well, that's the wrong oh, attitude. Wrong. You want your finance guy to be smarter than you or your finance lady to be smarter than you. You want your marketing VP. You want her to be smarter than you. You want your operations person to be smarter than you because if you're the smartest on the team, you probably have a team of dwarfs. Well, and you're the bottleneck. You want to have giants on your team. I know. You You don't want to be the bottleneck, and I've been the bottleneck. it's, uh, yeah, it's easy to do. Yeah, like sometimes that. it becomes ego. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so that's you're the talking... team part. So, and, right, keep going. I'm and sorry. You've mentioned this a couple times already. In your, so you had some on-the-job training. You thought you could do this and that by yourself. 
and then you realize that you cannot because at some point, if you try to do it yourself, you're going to burn out because it's just so much. And, you know, it's only so much you can work 18-hour days. And then at some point you can say, oh, I can't handle this. This is something's wrong here. And, well, yeah, what's wrong is your mentality. But you got to be able to trust people to delegate. And so that comes in mind, too. So just really quickly, I called the three Ds of delegation. I didn't come up with this. I was at a um, conference, and this guy, it was really simple. He said the three Ds of delegation first is, you define the job. Here's the job. Here's what we need you to do. You think you can do the job? Do you think you have the resources? Okay. The second D, you delegate. You give them the authority, the responsibility to get the job done. And then the surprise is the third D. The third D is you disappear. You step back. You let them do their job. You realize they're not going to do it exactly like you would do it, but you got to learn how to accept the work of others. And if it's really bad, you coach them up or you coach them out. So you have meetings where you can work with them on a regular basis and have updates, but what you don't want to do is micromanage them and looking over their shoulder every minute. First, you don't have time for that, and most people don't appreciate that, at least not good people. So that's the three Ds of delegation. Define the job, delegate the authority, and then disappear. And that disappearing is really hard for some people because you got to have trust. When you said that, <laughs> and I, I learned to do that. I had to learn to do that quite a ways back. It still made my stomach clutch when you said that. I was like, oh, <laughs> no, 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 yes. I'm the boss. No, but you have to. Yes. You really do have to. Well, it's important. And if you're a perfectionist, it's even harder to let it go. But I remember yep. in my time in banking, we would have operations officers who uh, ran the teller side of the bank, and they would be there at 8 o'clock because they wouldn't delegate. They didn't trust others, so they just put all these little tasks. And then, you know, they were working 12-hour days, and all of a sudden they felt unappreciated. Well, why are you leaving at 5 and I'm here at 8? Well, maybe you need to work smarter and get your team involved and delegate more and oversee it instead of doing it yourself. But that's the yep. mindset. You've got to get rid of that. But, you know, perfectionists it's have a hard, hard time do. letting go. Well, there and there you have it. I am a perfectionist. I'm a recovering perfectionist, <laughs> I think. That's right, I, may have just, I may have just lied. I don't know. I like to think I'm a recovering perfectionist. I mean, I don't think it really goes away, but you do learn to manage it. So there's that. Well, can I let me tell you a little secret here. When you get into this perfectionist mode, remember this. It's not a piano. So that's a time management technique. So when you think about a piano, well, when you think about a piano, every time we want to fine-tune it, it has to be perfect. Ding, 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 ding. But everything doesn't have to be perfect. And sometimes perfectionists will lose a lot of time, waste a lot of time trying to perfect everything they do. But some things other people are not going to see They're your personal notes. They're your personal this. They're not your finished product. So why do you have to waste time perfecting it? So just remember, it's not a piano. Everything we do does not have to be perfect. And we can throw in a life perspective. Life doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Well, there's no such thing as perfect. It took me the longest kind of time. Nothing is perfect. It can get nothing darn close, perfect. but nothing is perfect. Well, I know I'm not perfect. Ask my wife. Oh, you and me both. And I don't have to ask anybody <laughs> but me. I already know this. <laughs> but you know what? I'm fine with it. It took me a yeah. while to say, all right, Denise, you're never going to be, you know, the most whatever it is that you want to be today. But I'm going to, you know, do whatever I can to get as high as I can before I go to sleep and before I wake up the next morning and start all over again. Mm-hmm. Well, the young man that I was talking to about worrying about being incompetent, I told him, I said, look, just be genuine, be authentic, and everything else to take care of itself. When you start faking it and start making up stuff and saying stuff you don't really know but it sounds good on the surface and you want to sound smart, that's when you're really going to lose people 
if you're authentic, then you're vulnerable. You're not perfect. If you think you're perfect, you may be a narcissist. <laughs> Without question. There's no maybe about it. You are one. <laughs> and we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. No. If you've ever been around one to work with one, you say, oh, no. Go away. Oh, yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> I've gotten to where I can smell them. I just, you know, I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not coming anywhere no, near no, no, you. No. I am gone, and I leave. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about, because you, you have mentioned the, the foundation and what you've got going on. So we've got, oh, we've got about 25 minutes. So I really want to deep dive into what you're doing and I also wanted to go back to the top of the show when you said you know that you had gathered up these people when you first started and what you didn't mention is that I think you maybe unknowingly or maybe even deliberately created a very fine mentorship program no I that was unknowingly we were talking about COVID-19 and I was teaching at Dominguez Hills, and March 2020 hit, and all of a sudden things stopped, and the world changed, and we heard all these issues and problems. So we had to come back online. We were away from the students for a couple of weeks, so we started talking. And I think sometimes you want to address the gorilla in the room, which was COVID-19. And I told my students, I said, I'm sure there are a lot of problems going on. I'm sure there are a lot of health issues going on. But let's talk about the positives. I'll let someone else hear about all the negatives. So I want you to try your best to come up with some positive stories from COVID-19. And one of my favorite stories, one of my students said, um, I'm at home so much. I'm more effective at home. I've even had time to paint my house. I said, wow. <laughs> I expect to hear that one. But that was just one of the positive stories. And so I decided that, I wanted to do something that's positive coming out of COVID-19. And I was doing some research reading a U.S. World and News report, and it was talking about student debt, $1.6 trillion. This was March 2020 U.S. World and News report. And in the same magazine, there was another article about 15 universities in the United States that are tuition-free. And I'd never heard of a tuition-free university. And so I read the article and find out of the 15, five of which are our military academies. So West Point, oh. Naval Academy, Air Force, they're all tuition-free. You're kidding. For I didn't know us. that. Us, the taxpayer. I didn't either. All yeah, the darn. so us. And we know they're turning out military leaders. So then I said, okay, how can we, or what if, we put together a training, a master-level training program. I thought about making community college, but I decided let's do a master-level training program, target black and brown founders, and let's make it tuition-free. Let's go out to the government. Let's go to corporations. Let's go to banks and foundations and ask them to donate to us scholarship dollars why we can bring people in, entrepreneurs, black and brown primarily, and they leave us with no student debt. And so that was the positive thing that came out of COVID-19 for us. So we started planning this in July 2020, and we launched in January 2021, so about a year ago, and we are getting ready to graduate our first class. Uh, we got our 501c3 designation around uh, April or May of 2021, so that was a big significant thing. Uh, because we're a startup in our world, in the nonprofit world, if you can align yourself with an existing nonprofit, then organizations will donate money to you more readily, especially corporations. So we went out and became um, a partner of the Los Angeles Urban League, and uh, Michael Lawson is the president and CEO there. He heard what we were trying to do. He immediately jumped on the op- opportunity. So now the LA Urban League, which was founded in 1921 in LA, a 100-year organization, thinks enough of the Polk Institute to be our fiscal sponsor. So that was a pretty nice milestone that we met. So Congratulations. Thank you. 
we our first cohort class we had 26 19 were i mean 17 were women-led companies and nine were men-led companies we targeted black and brown and we came out with 11 black-led companies six brown-led companies but then we had seven white companies and two asian companies so we had the diversity that we wanted too because you know if you understand marketing you have a target market but you don't want to be exclusive so we had our target market of black and brown but yes white and asian they're welcome and so we have a very nice diversity i love diversity that's kind of one of the benefits of growing up in los angeles and southern california is that you're around diversity all day and it's kind of normal for us and so i enjoy that but anyway so that's what we did and um we're going to graduate our first class in January, and uh, we're going to have a um, showcase, our inaugural showcase, and uh, they're going to come up. We had a pitch training last night, and we're excited. And so we had a pretty good first year, but we're going to have a better second year. Oh, and definitely. we're already planning our second year, so we're excited. Nice. Well, and you mentioned the word cohort, and I know what it means because I've spoken with you and I've spoken with um, other people on your team, but when you say cohort, what does that mean? That's a good question. A cohort is a group of people, usually your students or trainees, and they stay together throughout the training period. It could be a six-month period, a one year, could even be two years, where you have different trainers, you have different professors, you have different instructors, and they come and go, but the cohort, the group of people, stay together. So when I got my master's degree at Dominguez Hills, they had an executive uh, program to get your master's in 18 months, and they put us in a cohort. And this was back in 83, so that's when I first heard the term cohort. So you, we had one group, and it was about 30 of us, and we saw different professors, but we were always at one class, and that's what a cohort is. So we're looking at having 26 our first year. We want to increase it, but we're really excited about 2022 is that we're going to put together a legacy cohort. So we're going to put together 20 black and brown existing businesses that's been in business at least 10 years, and we want to help them along with their legacy that they've already started. But as a banker, I know the second generation is always a tough thing to follow that first generation, regardless of the color. So we want to try to we're focus on L.A. County. The Urban League is our partner in this program, and we want to focus on black and brown legacy companies, minimum 10 years, but ideally been around at least 20 years. And we want to help them with their growth plan. We want to help them with their management succession or exit strategy. We want to help them with getting certified and understanding how to go for government or larger corporate contracts. So that's a real great way to grow your business. We also want to help them on the financial side and really make sure their books are in order so when the bankers come around and the investors come around, they have good books that they can rely on. And then the fifth thing, no surprise, we're going to introduce them all to social entrepreneurship and hope that 60% of them say, yeah, I want to be a social entrepreneur in addition to all of this. So that's going to be our cohort legacy program. We're actually looking for companies right now, black and brown or white-led or Asian-led, that's been around at least 10 years to come to our website and join into our legacy cohort program. And we're very excited about that. I can understand why. And, you know, when you first started talking about, you know, people who have been or companies who have been around for ten, possibly twenty years, the immediate impression is, well, they've been doing this a long time. Why, you know, why do they still need help? Things change, yeah. absolutely yeah. change. People change, culture changes. So let's dive into that a bit, you know, and explain more fully why, you know, companies that have been around for a long time, they may not be failing, but they may not be growing. Do you have any case studies you can share? Well, I have one perfect one where I met a guy who owned a um, tile and brick company, and he told me that he wanted to grow to $100 million, 
and his sales were just under $10 million. I said, okay, that's a nice goal, very ambitious. Well, tell me about your plans and tell me about your team. So he said, well, it's my brother and I. He runs the back. I run the front. And I said, well, who's the CEO? I am. Who's the CFO? I am. Who's the CMO? Well, we have a marketing person. Who's operations, my brother? I said, okay, let's go back to you being CFO. Yeah, I got that. I said, you really think you can be a CFO and a CEO of a $100 million company? I said, let's add a CFO on this team, and now you have a chance to get to that $100 million, or let's say a better chance. He said, oh, no, no, I don't need that. So we went back and forth about six months. He said, okay, you wore me down. I'll hire a part-time CFO. Great. Yeah, isn't that called a – by that, you mean he would hire a fractional CFO? That's what they call it now. That's kind of the sexy term. Yeah. Fractional CFO, yeah. But it's still basically a part-time CFO. So anyway, he goes through the process. He likes it. He realizes, I'm going to hire a full-time CFO. And now he tells me, Gary, if anybody ever wants to question your ability to be a CEO coach, send them my way because had you not got me to hire this CFO, I would have never known that some of the products we were selling, we lost money every time we sold a product because we didn't really understand our cost of goods sold. And now we have a better cash flow, and now we know our margins of what we can make and how we do it. And now, and he's over $10 million now. He's on the way to $15 million. And that's just one small example of adding someone to your team when you thought you could do both. And now all of a sudden you realize, oh, my goodness, I thought I was thinking wrong. So that would be one example of how we really helped an existing company. And what's interesting is that I've worked with a lot of different companies. If you're coachable, then I can help you. And he's coachable. Now, it took six months to get through it, but – He's coachable. If you're not coachable, then I can't help you. So I think that's a really important thing. Existing businesses may be at the 1 million mark and cannot figure out how to get over to 2, 3 million, or they're at 5 million, can't figure out how to get to that next level. And so back to your question, how we can help them is help them look at their business practices, look at their team, Maybe look at their marketing strategy with some outside eyes. And look so at their money. The first thing we want to focus on is growth. Right. We come in and we're going to say, okay, what is your sales in 2021? And then we're going to ask them, what would you like it to be five years in 2026? We're not going to tell them what it should be, but once they tell us, then we want to say, okay, go to work. Let's work towards that. And so we want to first and foremost focus on sales because we know if sales grow, then they're going to need more employees. So now you're bringing in more employees because your sales are higher. And so it's kind of a domino effect. And so we're excited about our legacy cohort program. And, again, like you said, they may have been around, but have they been exposed to what a become a – certified minority-owned business or woman-owned business, and now you can get a contract with the county of L.A., the state of California, or Disney, or Apple, because now you went through the certification process, and now all of a sudden you can grow your uh, sales exponentially where you are in this rut because you really never exposed to the right business practices. So sometimes exposure is everything. Well, and understanding your profit and loss is also critical. And so many people, you said something really important, that they didn't understand that their profit margins on some of their items was either so whisker thin or non-existent and they were actually losing money, but they just kept doing it because the the numbers on the face of it, like, oh, we sold 100,000 of these widgets. Oh, right. But they didn't know what kind of money they were losing. And I see that happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, one other thing, Denise, I want to bring up is that uh, in two weeks, we're going to have my third book, Why Women Entrepreneurs Fail to Win. And I just wanted to talk about that for a moment, if we could, 
before we I run out of time. I was going to ask you, absolutely, it's on my, my list of things to ask you about, and you promised to send me one, so I can't yes. wait to see you. Yes, and so, look, uh, we're going to send out the PDF version, and hopefully you'll write a testimonial, because we're, then we're going to send it back and we're going to add some testimonials and have it out there by January. So the idea was we started with Why Entrepreneurs Fail, and that was my textbook in 2019, and that was pretty successful. My students loved that. I wrote it toward millennials. And then we wrote our second book in 2020, Why Black and Brown Entrepreneurs Fail. And we had a couple chapters that were really germane to black and brown people, and one was culture because we're in America and there are cultural differences. And the second was self-doubt. So then talking to my female friends, we said, well, let's start a third book and let's focus on female entrepreneurs. And so a couple chapters that are unique in that book, the third book, is access to capital. For whatever reason, I go to pitch competitions and pitch events, they're usually male-dominated. And that's interesting. Why is that? Well, because a lot of times the funders are males too. And the old saying, people give money to people that look like them. So access to capital becomes a challenge. Another thing in doing some research, we found that women can be very pragmatic, sometimes too pragmatic. I'll never forget a quick story. I was at this um, venture capital event where we had five venture capitalists on the panel and one of the, it was one female venture capitalist, and the lady said, hey, I want to talk to that female venture capitalist up there. What can you tell us, female entrepreneurs, what we need to do? And she was from Texas, so she had a little bit of draw. Now, my family's from Texas. I've heard that. And she said, well, let me tell you, we can be too pragmatic. A guy would go up there and say, in the first year, we're going to do $25 million in sales, and the lady comes up, and she said, we're going to do $5 million in sales. Well, why is that? Because she's thinking, oh, i got to be realistic, or i got to be practical, and that's just how we do. And the, the guys seem to know the game. And maybe the game is start high and let them talk you down, where the ladies are being pragmatic. And so the question is, is being true, too pragmatic holding you back from dreaming big? Yes, I'm going to tell you, big. yes, it is. You know, if and then you my start, female co-author. Go ahead, I'm sorry. My female co-author said, well, Gary, you know, work-life balance, we've come a long way. There are a lot of men more helpful. But we saw in COVID-19, the child care and the home household responsibility still falls on the women entrepreneur more than the male. Well, there's another chapter. So we added those, but then we got to come back male or female, we're still entrepreneurs. So there's certain things that regardless of what you are, you're going to deal with marketing, operations, finance, but you have these other things. So all three books are meant to be an empowering book. It's really not a self-help book, but we talk about these issues, try to be as real as we can, and we take it from a practitioner level instead of an academic consult conceptual level. We want it to be real, that real entrepreneurs are reading this and using this in their business. And it doesn't matter where you are in the country, whether you're male or female, we honestly all have a lot of the same problems. I mean, we have to figure out where we fit in our own business and then find yes. help where yeah. we need help. Exactly. Okay. So I'm excited about, about that. And then we, uh, I mentioned to you earlier in our pre-talk that in 2022, I'm going to come up with my fourth book, but it's actually going to be a workbook. So we're just going to title it Why Entrepreneurs Fail to Win, the workbook, because we don't want to make it a race-based or gender-based. We just want it to be an entrepreneur-based, kind of like the first book, of the things that you have to do. But, of course, because we have the other two books, we're going to put some things in the workbook that are germane to black and brown entrepreneurs and to female or women entrepreneurs. But the workbook is going to be something that we hope that people can put into action. 
not something they just go through, but they can actually have a place that they can start writing notes. We got to have a digital version. So if, if they're digital, they can type in their ideas. Because oh, I like that. that's part of success and growth, of really planning and then implementing these plans. So are you going to, and this is the marketer in me, are you going to at some point offer a bundle of all of these books so people can just say, well, you know, do I need this one, this one, I need them all? I'm going to make a note of that. See there? <laughs> I told you I wasn't that smart. I didn't even think of that. Thank you. A, a bundle. bundle would be perfect. <laughs> yeah. That way You're people right. can right. say, you know, listen, I've got book one, but maybe I need book three. You know, maybe I need book four. Maybe I need them all, and I'll give book one away. Well, I can't give it away because I've already marked it up, but I'll keep it on my desk because I've got all my sticky notes on. A bundle would be perfect for people like me. That's a great idea. You are welcome. I hope you can make it happen. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And think about Christmas next do... year. You can sell it for Christmas next year. I'll help you. You well, let me know when it's ready, and I will though. send it out. We're going to put all three books on Audible. Oh, so excellent. We've talked about that. And, yeah, so 2022, we want to try to get all three books on Audible. I wasn't sure if I should narrate it myself or have a professional narrator. And in talking to enough people, I've decided I'm going to narrate it myself. Do it yourself. Listen, people who know you and people who have heard you before – are almost always a little bit disappointed because they've read your books. They hear your voice in their head already. They don't want somebody mm. else talking to them. Listen, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, every book, you ought to see my office. I've got two bookshelves in here. And every book mm. in this room was gifted to me by people like you. You've all been on my podcast. And oh. I've you know, heard everyone. There is not a book in here that was not given to me by my wonderful guests and mentors and I consider y'all to be my mentors and every once in a while I say okay I, you know I've got this book but I really do want to hear it you know I can listen to it while I'm working and if it's not in your voice I'm probably not going to buy it I want to hear your voice so that's just my two cents well that's good I mean that further validates what I've been hearing a lot of and so you must be right uh, I must yeah. be so I'm always right Gary you know, you know me well enough to know I'm always right, oh, right. <laughs> and humble. <laughs> Listen, we are out of time, so before we we uh, ooh, we've got two minutes. Tell people anything else that you want them to know. What they can find out about the the upcoming um, I can't even remember now the upcoming plan that you've got, and where can people find you on the internet? Okay, uh, I want to leave the. My last piece of advice for an entrepreneur, that it's a great time to be an entrepreneur, but make sure it's your passion. Don't do it just for the money. Make sure you love what you do or you want to make an impact, that you have a personal story that's going to motivate you to do this, that you want to help someone, make the world a better place. So make sure it's your passion. As far as contacting me, uh, we have a new website, and it's HTTPS colon uh, backslash backslash polkinstitute.org. So the main part, polkinstitute.org. My email address is gpolk at polk-ise-indian-sam-e-edward.com. So gpolk at polk-ise.com is my email address. And then the institute is polkinstitute.org. And um, our books are coming out. The bundle idea is something that I'm going to try to put together. I like that. Maybe we can get that out by first quarter, second quarter of 2022. But I really appreciate the time here. And uh, it's always fun talking to you. And my whole thing is I ask my clients, what's keeping you up at night? And a lot of times they think it's, oh, that's supposed to be something bad. Well, for me, it's good. I can't wait till the next day to work on the Polk Institute and some of these projects that we're working on because our our mission at the Polk Institute is simple, serving social entrepreneurs to help make the world a better place. 
Absolutely. And I'm like you. I mean, I don't go to bed worrying about what didn't get done or what's not going to get done. I go to bed, well, I do turn over whatever is bothering me to my subconscious for review, and I always get an answer when I wake up. But I wake up the next morning, and my mom used to say, you know, Denise is awake. The devil just said, oh, crap, she's awake. But that's how I operate. I hit the yeah. floor running, and off I go because I'm always so excited about what the new day is going to bring and what I'm going to bring to it. So I love your attitude. Yeah. Gary, thank you. It has been wonderful speaking with you again. And as always, I thank, thank you for you. all of the, the wonderful tips and the advice that you've shared with our audience. And I wish you the absolute best in the coming new year with your new products and projects in your book. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes, Spotify, anywhere else you consume your business podcast. Seriously, you cannot throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. Just look for us. And then take us along on your success journey. Gary, thank you. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.